In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, you know, right before Thanksgiving, I was in the line at Publix, as most of you probably were doing, getting a few last-minute ingredients that I had forgotten. And uh, as I was there, I noticed the lady in front of me, her T-shirt, or excuse me, her actually it was a sweater, and on a sweater it said, Team Oxford, comma, bringing clarity, class, and, you know, elegance back to the English language, something like that. And I, I chuckled, and uh, she met my eyes, and I said, preach it, sister. Yeah. Because punctuation really does matter. It really does. And the Oxford comma is a great example of it. Uh, I mean, think about this sentence for a second. Without that Oxford comma, this person is basically claiming his parentage is divine, Right? But with the Oxford comma, you get to see that he was thanking his parents, his girlfriend, and of course, God. Makes a big difference. Um, or children, without the Oxford comma, uh, you might want to run. As the teacher says, today, children, we're going to learn how to cut and paste, kids. That comma is important, right? Or for those of you who are grandparents, uh, supper time. Let's eat, Grandma. Kind of need that Oxford comma there, right? Um, punctuation really does matter. And that's where the title of the message and the punctuation makes a huge difference. That simple statement, Jesus is God. The punctuation really does matter here. Is it a question mark, an exclamation point, or perhaps an ellipsis? I worked several years ago at a corporation up in Jacksonville, had several thousand employees, and uh, I never will forget, one, one, the very first year that we were there, the, the, there was a lady, and we ended up calling her the Christmas lady, because she would take her cubicle and basically fill it with every tacky Christmas-type thing that had motion sensors and made noise and decorations, and she crammed it into this little space. She wore Christmas clothes the entire month. I mean, she was just all about Christmas. And really, it was kind of obnoxious. You'd walk by her cube, and a little drummer boy would start drumming, you know, and, you know, Rudolph the rain would go off, you know, and ho, 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 and all. I mean, it was like, wow. But, but one day I said, you know, maybe she's, a, you know, a Christian, and she's using Christmas to try to engage with people, and so I stopped by to talk with her, and uh, boy, was I ever wrong. She's a question mark person. Jesus is God? Are you crazy? And she just got furious as we began to talk. In fact, at one point, she basically almost spat in my face as she said, and I quote, why do you Christians insist on ruining our holiday? <laughs> she was a question mark person, right? Jesus is God? Are you kidding me? And then there's, of course, I've, I've through the years, met plenty of what I would say are ellipsis people. Jesus is God. Hmm. 
Well, maybe, I don't know. There's an ambiguity there. There's a, uh, just an uncertainty. And, and maybe just, uh, okay, I'll think about it because you brought it up, but really not much thought put into it because I'm kind of busy with life. Well, for those of you who are new to our church, or maybe you're watching online, I just want you to know that at Covenant Church, we are an exclamation mark church. Amen? Yeah. Jesus is God. Absolutely. And when people reject the claims of Christ, we contend that they actually cannot appreciate the full meaning of Advent and the Christmas season. So this morning, we are going to begin, a, for the month of December, we're going to hang out in John chapter 1. Uh, we, we've been in Joshua, and uh, we're going to take a, just a break for the Christmas season, and then we'll pick it back up again in January. But this, this month, we're going to hang out in John chapter 1. We're going to do a little di- deeper dive into this opening chapter of the gospel. Now, all the gospels record either Jesus' birth or the beginning of his ministries, his ministry. But the, the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, they focus more along the lines on what happened. But John, his emphasis is different, and the purpose of his gospel is j- different. In his gospel, he focuses on why it happened. Why did Jesus come? And he's, this opening chapter is the, the, the prologue, so to speak, of the entire book where, where John establishes the themes that he's going to further unpack throughout the remaining 20-some-odd chapters. And where he begins this morning is very important in these opening verses as he establishes this idea, this premise, that Jesus is the eternal God revealed. And my clicker isn't working. There we go. All right. In verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Let's begin. Let's do a little bit deeper dive here in these verses. That, that title, Word, the Word. Jesus is the Word. It's a, a Greek word, logos, and it, it has a, a myriad of meanings in, in Greek and Roman philosophy and in the Hellenistic world. That, that is absorbed into Christianity it has so much to say to us. But this morning, instead of doing, you know, we could, we could spend all service just on all the various meanings and how it could interact. Instead, I, I want us to simplify it and think of it from a, maybe a scriptural or biblical perspective. You remember how Jesus tells us that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth does what? It speaks. In, in other words, our Words that we use, they express our heart, the invisible essence of, of who we actually are. Our words reveal who we are. And so, as the divine word, Jesus is expressing who God is. He's revealing God to us. This is what the author of Hebrews says in And Hebrews chapter 1, in his opening verses, that are also a strong passage on the deity of Jesus Christ, which is what this message is all about. Jesus is God. And in those opening verses, he says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So as the divine word, as Jesus lived here on earth, and he 
he carried out the ministry that the Father had given to him. He revealed in that ministry who God is, what God thinks, what God feels about matters. So when we see Jesus healing the sick, he is revealing God's infinite mercy. When we see Jesus comforting those who are grieving, he is, reve- he is revealing and, and re- manifesting to us that attribute of God's compassion and concern. When, when Jesus casts out the money changers in the temple, he is revealing to us the absolute holiness of God. When he welcomes the little children to come and sit at his feet and interact with them and doesn't create barriers to them, he's revealing God's love for the children and his openness to seeing them come into the kingdom of God. Conversely, when Jesus expresses revulsion and disgust towards the Pharisees and the way they were deceiving the people, he's revealing God's absolute wrath towards religious hypocrisy and the condemnation that it brings. When he involves himself and spends time touching and interacting and speaking with Samaritans and even Gentiles, the unclean and the outcast of the society, he's revealing that according to God's plan and his kingdom, everyone is welcome, regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of where we find ourselves in life, we can all come to our heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. When Jesus Uh, looks at the fig tree on a journey near the end of his ministry, and he curses that fig tree so that it ends up withering and bringing no more fruit. He is revealing that when it comes to God's patience and his long-suffering, there is an expiration date, and that there is coming a time of judgment upon sin and those who reject Jesus Christ. And of course, most importantly, when Jesus died on the cross, He was revealing God's absolute, infinite, unspeakable, un-understandable love for his children that he has. The Word reveals the invisible God the Father. He's come in flesh. In the beginning was the Word. Was. That's an important word. That, that, That opening phrase. In the beginning was. This is asserting something important. In the beginning takes us back to Genesis chapter 1, where the Bible says, in the beginning, what? God created the heavens and the earth. And so John is directly tying us back to that opening phrase in the Old Testament in Genesis 1.1, was in the beginning. And in other words, John is saying Jesus was there when time began. Jesus' existence is an eternal existence. There's never a time when Jesus did not exist. In the beginning was is proclaiming to us that Jesus is eternal. Now, why is that important? The only person who can claim eternality is whom? God. God alone is eternal. In the beginning was God. Jesus is holy God, not a lesser God, not some kind of really divine-like human being who we should all aspire to live like. 
The, the, the underlying Greek language here that the New Testament was written in that John used is important. The word order is important. It's theos and hoologos. In other words, God was the Word. In his essence, Jesus is God. He's as much God as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. This truth that John is proclaiming, did he make it up? No, he Jesus proclaimed this about himself. Often when I've had uh, interactions, maybe lunches with, we'll, we'll say ellipsis people, those who are uncertain, who are, are seeking answers, uh, oftentimes I've heard those individuals feed back to me, well, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, and I, I want to say, have you read the Bible? You know. But they, they're, they're repeating what some professor at college or some talking head on the internet has fed to them, and they're saying something absolutely asinine. There's no better word for it. It's absolutely asinine. Um, uh, one individual, when we were having this conversation, and I just turned, I listened to him, and he gave all the reasons, and I finally just said, so I just have one question. If Jesus didn't claim to be God, why did the Jews kill him? They didn't kill him for feeding people and feeding the poor. Uh, they didn't kill him for healing people with leprosy. They didn't kill him for teaching that the, the, the people ought to love one another and support their leaders and everything else. That he, they didn't kill him for what he taught in those areas. They killed him for one reason, because Jesus claimed to be God in the sense of God the Father is God. And we know this from the Gospels. For example, in John chapter 8, we find Jesus teaching and preaching, and he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, now immediately, he's telling them what? I existed before Abraham. That alone is enough for them to pick up the rocks, but then he compounds it by saying, before Abraham was, I am. He took the very title of Jehovah that Jehovah used with Moses in the desert and the burning bush. Before Abraham was, I am. I'm the one who spoke to Abraham. I'm the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. And then what did the Jews, the Israelites do? They understood what he was saying. They picked up stones to throw at him, to kill him by stoning and Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. A little later, in John chapter 10, he says to the Pharisees and to the religious leaders and the people, I and the Father are one. Now, you know, we can use that phrase in modern English, and it's just like, you know, yeah, I'm one with you on this, baby. I mean, we've got this. We're, we're in harmony. No, that's not what he's saying. It's not like some theoretical allegiance that we have together. No, he's saying here, I and God the Father, we are one. We are God. One God. Three persons is how he has revealed himself to us in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And so Jesus said, for what good work are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, and it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Clear. It's very clear that Jesus claimed it, the Israelites understood it, they ultimately killed him for it, they rejected it, they attacked him because of this truth. This truth has been attacked throughout the history of Christianity. 
It was attacked in the early centuries. You know, one of the things that, that we do in our church, and again, those of you who are new, you'll see this, we, we worship and we come together with uh, eyes to the future, but we have a foot that's grounded in our heritage and in our past, and we appreciate the, the centuries of brothers and sisters who've come before us. We're standing on their shoulders as God works through us to build the kingdom of God. And oftentimes, in different services, you, you may see us participating with the ancient church, and we will recite creeds and confessions that were written in their day that were addressing issues, one of the most famous of which was the Nicene Creed. And the, the Council of Nicaea was brought together in 325 because there was a, a presbyter in Alexandria, a teacher and, a, and an elder, who had begun to teach that Jesus was not the eternal God. There was a time, as he said, when the Son was not. His name was Arius. He came to, to passages in the Bible like the only begotten Son of God, and he misunderstood what those phrases mean, and he concluded that these, this means that there was a point where Jesus was created by God the Father. He's some kind of lesser God. And this, this heresy it became so popular that the churches in the Mideast were roiled by controversy because of the number of people that, oh yeah, this makes sense to me, and they were buying into it. And so the Christian leaders and pastors and elders and bishops all came together in 325 to address and talk about this teaching and, and determine, is this what Jesus was saying or not? And they universally, unconditionally condemned it as heresy. And the Nicene Creed that we recite from time to time was written in response to what Arius said, that there was a time when the sun was not. So this truth has been attacked through the centuries. It's still here today. Through the Christian cults like the Latter-day Saints and the Jehovah's Witnesses, organizations that claim to be Christian, but their claim is empty because they deny that Jesus is God. Exclamation point. One way or another, they weaken and they detract and they demean this truth that we see. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, what's the next word? With God. That little word is important. And maybe I can illustrate it like this. Uh, back in the 1990s and the 2000s, there was a team and a quarterback that was normally in the hunt for the Super Bowl or in the Super Bowl, uh, the Green Bay Packers. And they had a quarterback by the name of who? Yeah, right, Brett Favre. Okay, Brett Favre. And so we, Catherine and I, would go to Super Bowl parties and football games, you know, parties that were gathered together. And you'd have all your Packer, your cheese heads, and they're all a little weird. We all can admit that. And they were all, you know, lifting up Brett Favre and how great Brett Favre is and everything else. And, uh, and so I, one day, one of the guys went out and said, Brett Favre, you, you like Brett Favre? Let me tell you about Brett Favre. I said, Catherine went to school with Brett Favre. They were at the University of Southern Mississippi together. They graduated together. He was a big man on campus. And let me tell you something. That guy would not leave my girl alone. <laughs> Everywhere we went, Brett Favre was after Catherine. And finally, I just had my fill of it. And at a party one day, I looked at him, I said, Brett Favre, I don't care how good you are at throwing a football, she is with me, and if you don't leave her alone, you won't be throwing a football for the rest of your life. Yeah. 
great story. At which point, Catherine would slap me up the head and say, he did not do that. Don't listen to what he's saying. This is all not true. It wasn't true, by the way, just to be fair. But it made a great party story, didn't it? Okay. And if she didn't ruin it for me, if she wasn't around, man, I, I milked that baby. Let me tell you, I went with it. But everybody understood when I said, she's with me. You, you know what that means, right? She's with me. The word is with God. He, he is literally face to face with God the Father. He is literally in a close, loving communion and fellowship and relationship with the Father that he enjoyed for all of eternity before time ever began. This is his existence. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit enjoying this kind of communion as they were with one another. Now think about that as you consider Jesus gave all that up to take on flesh and be born as a helpless baby. We cannot comprehend the cost to Jesus and taking on flesh and walking this earth. It was not like he was being honored it's not like anything that we, you mean give up this for that? It gives us perspective on the loving heart, how intent our God is on saving his people. It also establishes a very important truth that there is a distinction between God the Father and God the Son. He is a distinct person, as is the Holy Spirit. So why is this distinction so important? Why does John give such attention to the deity of Christ saying that Jesus is God? Well, this premise that he's laying out here in these opening verses is what he spends the rest of the book unpacking. Essentially, that as the eternal God, it's Jesus. It's Jesus alone who gives life. All things, verse 3 says, were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Two different kinds of life are being referred to here. In verse 3, as it's clear, certainly one of the ways that Jesus has given life is in creation. As the creator, Jesus brought all life into existence. If you want to prove that Jesus is God, you just simply look at the scriptures, and what will you find? You will find that God the Father created the universe, some passages say. Other passages say God the Holy Spirit created the world and everything that's in existence. And yet, other passages like this. In Colossians chapter 1, by him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, Jesus created all that is. How can you say God the Father created all that is, is, or God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, and not be contradicting one God, three persons? This is the doctrine of what we call the Trinity. And Jesus is God because Jesus created everything. By him, all things are held together. I love that verse. In other words, literally, if Jesus were not sovereignly in control of the universe and the world that we live in, right this very moment, the atoms themselves would explode and repel one another. 
everything would be disintegrated. That's the power of our interceding Lord. What a great song, Paxson. Thank you. Again, unseen grace. We don't even recognize that right now our very existence is dependent upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ holding all things together. So certainly, when John talks about life, he's talking about our physical life, creation itself, but there's more here. He's more concerned with spiritual life. The physical life is important, but the spiritual life is even more important, and John's concern is what what we know as eternal life. If we go to John chapter 5, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears me and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So this morning, if you are here and you are relying upon your religious activity, if you are relying upon your spiritual heritage, if you're relying upon your moral uprightness, if you are relying upon your acceptance of an intellectual set of doctrines and beliefs, you've missed the boat. If you're relying upon anything other than Jesus, if you are adding your goodness or your effort or your work or your character or your lifestyle to Jesus in your faith, you've missed the boat. After the Pentecost, Peter and John will be arrested. And as they are confronting the very men who crucified Jesus, they turn to them and they say, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And so if you're here this morning, and you're trusting in anything other than Jesus alone for your salvation, you've missed the boat. You've missed what John is most concerned with, that we all have eternal life. And why do we need this life? Because we live and we're born in darkness. The final verse in our passage says, the light shines in the darkness. And that word darkness here is the idea of utter darkness, of spiritual darkness. And the dark, but the darkness has not overcome the light. It also means that the darkness doesn't understand the light. And so we all need this life, the light that comes from Jesus, because humanity has been darkened by sin, by unbelief, by rebellion against God. And this darkness is utter darkness to the extent that when John, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, shortly after that encounter, we read, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. This is how we're born into this world. We are born spiritually in sin and darkness, and this sin-darkness brings death, not life. It brings hatred, not love. It brings lies, not the truth. It brings self-worship and self-centeredness, not a life that is lived for the glory and honor of God to see his kingdom expanded and grow in this world. The depth of this darkness is seen in the rejection of Jesus. Some in his time rejected him, The question mark people rejected him by screaming, crucify him. The ellipsis people 
They just rejected him by ignoring him, going about their everyday lives. And if you look in our world today, you see the same thing happening. Some scream to have him removed from the public square. You Christians, you've ruined our holiday. and want nothing to do with him. Still others marginalize Jesus by having a holiday, going about their daily lives, and ignoring the person who is behind this very season that we celebrate. All of them miss that without Jesus being born as a human baby, none of us could be brought into the kingdom of God. They don't understand that the wrath of God towards the sin of humanity is so profound that it cannot be satisfied by a mere mortal. God himself had to be born in this flesh in order for humanity to be able to satisfy the wrath of God. Only God can satisfy God's wrath. And this is why God would leave the glories of heaven and all that is wrapped up in that existence where he was with God and lay aside that glory temporarily to become a human baby who would grow up to die. And God does all of this so that we as his children can be redeemed and brought into his kingdom. In the spring, we're going to be in the book of Colossians. We're going to do a deep dive in those four chapters for about three months. I quoted from it a moment ago, and the verses leading up to that verse that talks about Jesus creating all things say this. Paul says, I thank the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. And God's people say, Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming and dying on the cross. Thank you for taking on human flesh. Thank you for being a high priest that is familiar with our afflictions. But Lord, most of all, thank you that you were willing to lay aside the glories of heaven being with the Heavenly Father so that we, your people, could be redeemed. And Lord, as your people here this morning, we rejoice in the quietness of our own prayers. As I pray, we honor and praise you and we express our thanks to you. And Lord Jesus, we also ask that you would pour your spirit out upon those who are here or those who that we love who are not here, those that we know that are not here who do not yet know you as their Lord and Savior. May you open doors, may you open hearts this Christmas season. Open hearts that are willing to believe. Open doors that give us, as your people, the opportunity to share the hope, the good news that we have, because you have redeemed us from our sins. 
not because we are worthy, not because we are better than anyone else, for we were in darkness too, but because you, out of your infinite grace, have chosen to pour your love out upon us even before you ever created us. We thank you for this indescribable, mysterious grace and love that you have for us. May we honor you this Christmas season for who you are and what you've done. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.